All right, if you would, please turn in your Bibles. We're uh, to Ezekiel, the Old Testament, chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. It's on page 724 of a pew Bible in front of you, or you can just follow along on your, in your bulletin. You know, we return this, this morning, I've been uh, away from the pulpit for a few weeks, we return to uh, our sermon series titled New. Um, and one of the problems we may have this morning is that our text is old, as in Old Testament, from the prophet Ezekiel. So let me just give you a brief background before we read our text. Ezekiel is a prophet of God who wrote during the time of the exile, the final exile of God's people out of the promised land. Years after the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon. Why? Well, the people of God had become so corrupted and so defiled that God had to follow through on his promise to spit them out. If your Bible's open, you can read that from verse 16 on to 21. It tells you a little background there. And yet God will not leave them there. He will return them to himself. But he won't bring them back the same as before. A change will occur. A change must occur. They need new hearts. Oh, the wonderful truth that God gives new hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness, vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, and you want to know his way, then you must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It's ancient, yes, but it's so appropriate to us today. 
This world is full of people in need of heart change, including ourselves. Will you be merciful to us today? Will you show us afresh our need of mercy and grace? Will you remind us of who we now are in Jesus Christ? Uh, may our hearts pump with the, the gospel um, for you and for people made in your image, we pray. Amen. Do you remember the story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Do you remember what was wrong with the Grinch? In case you forgot, let me just read. It's always fun to hear Dr. Seuss, isn't it? Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight, or it could be that his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's. The Grinch had a problem. It could have been that his shoes were too tight, but more likely his heart is the answer that's right. You see what I did there? <laughs> All right. I promise not to do that through the rest of the sermon, but I'm glad you guys were following. The Grinch's heart was defective. He lacked the capacity to think of others first, to love, to have compassion, uh, to give instead of to receive. His whole life was turned in on himself. And so the description of his heart being two sizes too small, it resonates with us. We kind of get it, don't we? Well, there's a well-repeated quote. I tried to figure out who the original author was of it. Uh, I, I don't know, but you may want to write this down. Here's what he says, or somebody says. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it refers not so much to our emotions as to our will. The heart is where priorities are established. It's where one's thoughts and hopes and dreams are formed and then passionately pursued. Now, academics like to point not to the human heart, but what? To our, well, our lack of understanding. In other words, we just need to be better educated. Now, if that's true, then why is it that even when we know what is right, we often do what is wrong? I once saw a car with the do not text while you drive bumper sticker on it. You know what the woman was doing? <laughs> Texting while driving. It's not an education problem, nor is it that our shoes are too tight. Some people roll their eyes at the biblical understanding of human nature, and they're quick to say, but, but nobody's perfect. And I agree, it's true. Nobody is perfect. But isn't it true that when people say that, they aren't really speaking from remorse, are they? No, they're speaking from self-absolution. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I know I did what I did was wrong. It's kind of despicable. But you should understand, shouldn't you? I mean, even though a few people were hurt by my words, well, 
Nobody's perfect. In other words, I forgive myself, and I declare that my conscience is clear. Isn't that kind of how people think? Nobody's perfect. Instead, how about we actually lament the fact that nobody's perfect? How about we rock back and forth with tears of grief and sorrow at the fact, though, no matter how educated we are, and we are really educated, we know right from wrong, and yet we choose often what is wrong. And the whole world is worse off because of it. Why don't we lament that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart? Instead, like Don Quixote, we go tilting at windmills, imaginary foes instead of the real adversary. We feel smug in our own islands of self-righteousness as we look with scorn and disdain upon all those other groups of people whose shoes are just too tight. They're the sources of the world's problems. People like global warming deniers or left-wing progressives or those alt-right-wing conservatives. If we could just purge the world of them, then everything would be all right. We tend to find fault with everyone but ourselves. As Voltaire aptly stated, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. Which again proves the Bible's thesis. The problem is with our hearts. All humanity has a heart promise. Not your neighbor, it's you. And the problem isn't that our hearts need to grow like the Grinches. God says they need to what? Be replaced. Thankfully, what we see in our text today and what has come true in Christ is that God gives new hearts to his people. We're going to look at that this morning in three areas. First, we're going to look at the predicament, then the provision, and then the pulse. First, the predicament. You know, I really don't want to bore you with too much detail, but unless we understand the context into which Ezekiel is writing, we will not be able to understand what God is saying to them, and then we will not be able to properly make application to our own lives here today. So... Remember this, the Bible is one big unifying story of God's activity in creating a universe, creating a world for his glory, created people made in his image and all kinds of other things, and that mankind was created by God to flourish before God on earth. But that flourishing ended with the very first humans. Their hearts turned away from God and turned inward towards self, and all all hell broke loose on earth. And so this is the problem with ancient man and modern man. Though mankind should know and love and honor God, our hearts have become darkened and they seek glory within the creation. We seek glory in created things instead of the creator. That's the problem we all share. But God has the final word. He will restore a people. It began with Abraham almost 4,000 years ago. God chose Abraham out of all the people on earth, not because he was a good man, but God chose to show his goodness to him. And he entered into a binding covenant with Abraham. God said to Abraham, trust me and let me lead you where I'm taking you. And I will do two things. One, I will create a mighty nation out of you. In other words, I'm going to create a people 
a special people. And two, I will give you a promised land, a special place in which my people may dwell and thrive as a nation. Now, do you remember why God said that he was going to do this? If you look at Genesis 12, there's a so that. God says, I'm going to do this and this so that. What is it? So that all the nations of the world would be blessed through this people. God's purpose and redemption of his people is so that the world would be blessed. That people would come, that people would come to know Yahweh. That's God's name. That they were to come to know and love Yahweh and give their hearts to them. See, as, as foreigners traveled through the land, they were to be converted. They were to, they were to say things like, have experiences like this. Look at how kind and fair and just these Hebrews are. There must be something different about their God. What's his name? Oh, Yahweh, you say? I want to follow Yahweh. But that's not really how it worked out. (laughs) After delivering the mighty nation into the promised land, a land that was really filled with the vilest of nations, Nations so perverse that, that some people even sacrificed their very own children to the god Moloch. Israel entered into that land and grew in numbers, but they grew away from God. In fact, by the time of Ezekiel, the nation had become so broken and sinful that they were actually worse than the nations to which they dispelled from the promised land. Israelites themselves were, worship, were, were, were offering up their very own children to the God more. They had polluted the land by their actions. They had become unclean. They were no longer worthy of dwelling there. And God used the surrounding nations to take them back. First in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and took out the northern kingdom. And then in beginning in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came in and began taking the, what was left of the kingdom into Babylon. God's promise to spit his people out, if they, out of the land had, had come true. But then... God speaks to the nation, to the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Through them, God promised to be faithful to his covenant. Though the nation in no way deserved redemption, God would orchestrate it. Now, back to our text. Eleven times in our passage, you see that? Eleven times God says, I will (laughs) I will take you back and gather you in. I will cleanse you. I will be your God. I will restore your land. I will make your crops fruitful. Amazing, right? After all that Israel has done. Now, let me ask you a question. And and how you process this question will deeply impact your understanding of God. Why is it that God redeems Israel back? To himself. Was it something good in them? Did God sense that if given a second chance, they would surely toe the line this time? Here's the answer that's a challenge. All of us here at some level try to grasp this. God does not move on Israel's behalf. God moves on his own behalf. God redeemed and restored Israel for God's own glory. Look at verse 22. It's not clear. It's clear here. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, 
that I am about to act. It's not because you deserve what I'm about to do. It's not because I think I might have overreacted in punishing you. It's not because I think you're now deserving of my compassion. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for my name. Challenging, isn't it? Look at the rest of verse 22 and 23. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. He's talking about being sent out into exile. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Israel is profaning God's name, not in the sense of vulgar language. They're not like walking around cussing, all right? No, they profane his name by how they live godless lives, even though they are the people of God. They're deserving nothing short of God's eternal judgment and rejection. God owes them nothing. He does not act for them, but for his name and glory. Now, some think this idea of bringing redemption and renewal to this earth for his own sake is troubling. And a few here may be thinking, see, this is why I reject Christianity in the first place. We've got this God who seems to be all wrapped up in his own self-image. Maybe these words will help you think it through. It's from Ian DeGood. He writes, listen closely. God's concern with his own name and glory may seem offensively self-absorbed to contemporary readers. We are used to beginning our theological questions, quote, from below, and celebrating God who is, quote, for us. But listen to this. But God is only for us because it brings glory to himself. Moreover, such self-absorption is a great virtue in God as it is a flaw in human beings. Check this out. For God to delight in his own perfections is entirely appropriate since there is no one and nothing greater in which he can delight. To delight in anything less than himself would be idolatry, just as it is idolatry for us, the creature, to delight in anything less than our great creator. Sanctifying his great name, exalting God above all things, is the only task fit for God himself and for humankind whom he has created in his image. Israel was to promote the glorious name of Yahweh, their God, to all the nations around them. Instead, when the nations took them into captivity, they would have said things like, what's the name of your God? Yahweh? He stinks. He must be weak and powerless. There's no effect upon you. Look what happened to all these people. You're pitiful. Our God's better than your God. Did you see that? The people who profane God's name among the nations. And so what God is saying through Ezekiel is something like this. 
What I'm about to do by bringing you back into the land and into a relationship with me is going to cause the world to take notice. The world will rightly see me as powerful and glorious and, yes, good and worthy to be praised. So how does this challenge you? Perhaps you're one who sits in judgment of any kind of God who would exalt his own glory over lesser glories. Perhaps you never thought this through and perhaps you need a little time to process it. That's a good thing. Perhaps you also have a hard time believing that God doesn't save anyone based upon any residual goodness in them. Surely my good deeds must count for something, you say. But let this truth settle in. God's primary motivation for the redemption of his people isn't anything good in us. It isn't that God sees in us anything redeemable and says, now that's my boy, that's what I was looking for, good job, now I'll take you. See, if you enjoy redemption, it's not because you're more (coughs) deserving than any others, right? I mean, I know unbelievers who live far more pleasing lives than some Christians. I know unbelievers who are faithful in their marriage and are joyful, and who give generously towards others. So know this, if God's mercy has come to you, know this, it's it's for Yahweh's great name that you are saved. It's because he has promised to save for himself a people that will display his glory. Eleven times God says, I will. So it's all his idea, it's all his work. And he alone, therefore, is worthy of praise and honor and glory. God's salvation of undeserving sinners vindicates the holiness of his great name. That's the predicament. Now for the provision. All right. Let's get to the heart of the matter. (laughs) Okay, that was pretty bad. Uh, God tells the Israelites in exile that for the sake of his holy name, he is going to act within time and history. In verse 24, God declares that he will gather in the deported back into the land that they have defiled. He writes, I will take you from the nations and gather you in from the countries and bring you in to your own land. But think this through. How is it that unholy profaners, defiled people, can come and and dwell in the presence of a holy God in a place that he has set apart as holy unto himself? Look at verse 25. It's beautiful. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols um, I will cleanse you. Just as in the temple, the priests used to sprinkle water or blood in order to do what? To take just common, ordinary bowls and tables and things and set them apart as holy unto service unto God. So too, God says he will take ordinary, common sinners and cleanse them, sprinkle them with clean water, clean them from all their uncleanness. He repeats it in verse 29, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. See, before God cleans us in Christ, we were all unclean before God, defiled by our sin, dirtied. And you know what? We just aren't even aware of it. 
During the H1N1 flu outbreak in 2009, seems like just the other day, doesn't it? Um, a news crew from the weekend edition of Good Morning America conducted an experiment in Washington, D.C. with a class of fifth graders. The experiment's goal was to see how well fifth graders wash their hands. At the beginning of the day, the news crew took this uh, special clear lotion, and a lotion that was only visible under black light, and everyone put their hands into it and got it on their hands. And, and, and the, the deal was, if the, if the students throughout the day were able to wash away this invisible lotion, well then, certainly they could wash away any germs. Now, the students went about their class as usual, washing their hands, using hand sanitizer throughout the day. But at the end of the day, when the, the news crew shined the black light on the children's hands, well, they were less than sanitary. Of the 25 students in the class, only two had washed well enough to remove the lotion. Many students had spread the lotion over their faces and over their clothes. And even the teacher was revealed to be a poor hand washer. Now, we've got teachers here in the room, so careful. If a news crew from Good Morning America comes up, you know what to do. This story, though, illustrates an obvious principle. It's hard to wash away what you cannot see. So to our sin, if we do not see it. One of our problems is that we have with our heart problem is that, that we are unclean before God and we... Don't even know it or admit it. Now, it's true also that even when people are aware of their own cleanness, their own sin before God, they often go about trying to fix it in the wrong ways. Instead of letting God cleanse it, they seek their own ways in which they can cleanse themselves. Take, for instance, the, in the Hindu religion, there's a ritual called Kumala. Kumala is a 55-day, wow, talk about a big... Christmas break, uh, religious break, 55-day Hindu festival uh, in which the devotees bathe themselves in water for the forgiveness of their sins. And they do it at the meeting point of three rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, and the Sarasvati. The, this festival, it's bigger than Burning Man, I'm sorry. It's the largest gathering of human beings on earth. It occurs every 12 years. The last one occurred in 2013, and it gathered roughly 100 million people. In American terms, this is the equivalent to one-third of the population of the United States landing in the Hamptons to bathe at Main Beach. You think, you think the Hamptons gets busy in the summertime. I'm a local. All right. <laughs> now, isn't it ironic that they go to the Ganges River for spiritual washing? It ranks in the top five of the most polluted rivers in the entire world. Millions of households pour their raw sewage into the river. Thousands of businesses pour chemicals into the river. Dysentery, cholera, hepatitis, and severe diarrhea, which is the leading cause of death in children, can all be contracted from being in the river. Doesn't make much sense. 
Now, we can't commend them for at least acknowledging their sin and wanting to do something about it, right? But seeking cleansing from the filthiest of water is utter foolishness and ineffective, no matter one's sincerity. So whether you're Christian or not, doesn't it make logical sense that if we recognize that we have a need for cleansing of sin, that the cleansing must be, one, done by someone other than us, and two, it needs to be done with pure agents, right? No muddy water. As we read in verse 25, we read, one, that God will do this work for us, and two, this cleansing will be with what? Clean water. Moving on, let me ask you this question. If you were to take a hoarder, I know you've seen these shows, and I don't want to make light of of what hoarders go through, uh, um, but if you were to take a hoarder out of their cluttered, newspaper-filled home and buy them a new home, clean and like nothing even in it, and you were to put that person in that house, what do you think over time would be the outcome? With this in mind, I hope you see that getting a cleansing from sin and a fresh start in the land, it isn't enough. If you move Israel back into God's special place, what makes you think that they would do any better the second time around? The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so God asks, so God knows that to bring his new cleansed people back into their newly cleansed land isn't enough. God must address the heart of the human problem for his people. And that's what he tells us he will do in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my, my spirit, his very own spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This isn't like, okay, I guess I'll follow your rules, God. No, this is, I want to. Something's new about you. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And check this out. This is the promise of the entire Bible. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. If you want to summarize the entire Bible, it's right there. But in order for you and I to do this, we need a cleansing, and we need more than that. If we really want to honor and love and obey God, we need new hearts. God promises ancient Israel that there will be a day to come when he takes out cold, dead, stony hearts, and he gives hearts of flesh, warm, alive, beating hearts that have their hearts set set their affection upon God and his love and his mercy. Hearts which really truly desire to walk in God's good statutes. Hearts that want to obey. Why? Because obedience is good. Young people, listen to me. And and older folks can listen too. Don't ever allow yourself to think otherwise. Obedience to God is good and desirable. Consider the life of joy you would experience if you lived every moment of every day for God's glory and according to his loving rules. 
Don't think this would be a second-rate existence. How could it be? If you lovingly lived out God's law to perfection, you would be such an amazing, trustworthy, caring, bold, courageous person with integrity. People would leave their homes to follow you. People would be tempted to worship you as lovely and divine, or yes, people would want to kill you. You would be like, well, Jesus. Young people, do not be misled. There is no greater life to be lived than than with a heart that is fully devoted to God and walking according to his ways. But God must give you this heart. It's a work of his sovereign grace. And it comes only through his son, Jesus Christ. See, it's true, isn't it? Uh, some of God's promises, they take centuries to be fulfilled. Those to whom Ezekiel wrote, guess what? They died in Babylon. It would be their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids who would be welcomed back into the land. And then, you know, it took a hundred years for Hezekiah to rebuild the temple. And if, if you recall, the second temple, well, it just wasn't like the first It was smaller. And you know what? God's glory never returned to it. At least not for another 400 years. When in walks Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He overturned the tables in the temples. See, people once again had profaned God's name among the nations. See... In the temple, there was this outer region. It was supposed to be for who? It was set aside for the nations. People from other nations were supposed to come there to to pray. But they had turned it into a prophet center. But Jesus did what? He cleansed the temple. Cleansed it of all that profaned God's name. And then a few years later, on a hillside outside of Jerusalem... Jesus gave his life to cleanse his people once and for all. And after 50 days, he rose from the dead. He poured out new hearts and a new spirit upon upon God's people, now the church. And so in a real and genuine way, God has done this in Christ. This is the new birth that we've been talking about in this series. Remember, if you were in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. But remember, we live in the already, not yet. The fullness of this promise is yet to come. Though we have these new hearts, there there still seems to be these powerful remnants within us, like our old hearts within, that seem to undermine the work of the new heart. We, like Paul, say that we, we know the good we ought to do, and yet we often still don't do it. Which is why we need to keep praying that old psalm. Give me an undivided heart. Lord. And it's why we must set our hopes upon an even greater fulfillment of God's promises when Christ returns. But do not lose heart in the present. Do not be discouraged. The age of the new heart is here. You can have this new heart. How do you know if you do? 
Well, if you now love God, then this new heart has come upon you. If you've come to give your life to Christ and live for him, then this new heart has come upon you. If you know that God's word and that God's way are right and they lead to to peace and universal flourishing, then this new heart has come into you. If you find that your hope is no longer placed in earthly things, then this new heart has come upon you. If you find yourself being more patient and loving to others because God has been patient and loving to you, if you find it easier to turn the other cheek, if you give generously out of thankfulness, not expecting anything in return, this new heart is in you. Give thanks and rejoice. So that's the predicament and provision. Now quickly, the pulse. I know we've got some doctors here, so I'll be careful not to try to be too smart, but uh, keep it simple. You know, your physical heart has a natural pacemaker. Electrical signals travel to your heart, and they trigger the muscles to contract and pump blood. So, too, this new heart that God gives has a kind of a supernatural pacemaker that that creates a life-giving pulse in this new heart. And what is it that drives the pulse of your God-given heart? It's God's grace towards you. See, the more you remember your need for God's grace, the more you're reminded of his abundant grace, the more your heart beats for the God of grace. This pulse is energized by a posture of penitence. That's why God calls for Israel to be a penitent people. Let's look at the last few verses in 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. You'd think like 31, 32 wouldn't be there. You'd think like, uh, I'm going to cleanse you all these, I'm going to give you all this food and all this stuff, and everything's going to be great, right? No, but God says there's a proper posture that we must have every day of our Christian life, because without it, our hearts will not beat for God and for love of our fellow man. The proper posture of someone who's been redeemed and given a new heart is an ongoing posture of humility before God. Now, you know, modern people view such self-loathing that he's talking about here as, you know, psychologically unhealthy. They urge you to embrace the foundational importance of high self-esteem. The Bible takes a different view of our proper posture. We are to remember our past. And we are to be ashamed of our sin. We are to lament every way in which our lives have profaned the good name of God. But know this, this is not in the end a destructive or crushing emotion. Listen to what one commentator writes. He says that this posture, listen, this posture is the core fuel for genuine repentance and humility. And for the joy and peace that flows from that same source. And then listen, here's what he says. When I remember my sins, I know that God does not. You 
See, when you remember your sins, be it 30 years ago or three hours ago, you are reminded of your great need and God's great provision. In that moment of reflection upon God's grace, it moves in your heart like an electrical pulse. It causes you to to really love God and desire to honor God with your life. It causes you to take up your own cross and follow after Christ. If you're in Christ, you've experienced this, haven't you? You know that joy that comes with genuine repentance at the cross of Christ. And how in the moment it might seem hard, but in the end there is great thankfulness and joy and delight. You've experienced that, haven't you? What if you do not spend time allowing God to search out your heart? What if you gloss over your sins and past and present without owning them and taking them to the cross? What if you return to that old refrain of, well, nobody's perfect? Well, you miss out on the experience of God warming your heart again, giving life to it. The only way in which God can give life to your heart through remembrance of his grace towards you. Guess what will happen? What happens when you, you don't exercise your heart? It becomes, becomes weaker and weaker. Which tells us something. This is something we must do regularly, daily. So the gospel brings this reality into our lives. Though we are indeed far worse than we ever could have imagined, The gospel reminds us that in Christ Jesus, we are far more loved than we ever could have conceived. Simultaneously. And you do not get to a proper understanding of knowing how, how, um, of conceiving how much you are loved until you understand how much you need to be forgiven. God says to Ezekiel that we are to be in a posture of humility before God, that we should regularly grieve over our sins. And when we do, from this posture of humility and gratitude, we find ourselves where we must always go, which is to the cross. Christian, remember this. God's grace towards you isn't just for the day in which you were saved. It's for each and every day of your life. You are saved by grace, and you live by grace. And so the more you repent daily, the more your heart will be pulsed by God's grace. I don't know about you, but I need that. (laughs) I need to hear that. I need that reminding. Let me end with just a few questions and a challenge. Do you rightly see that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart? And not just others' hearts, but your own? And do you see your need for God to act, your need for cleansing, to be brought back to him, You need an inner renewal. You don't need to just declutter your life. You need a new heart. God's spirit within you. Do you know that? Perhaps you're here and this is making sense for the first time. What are you to do? Give your heart to Christ. Um, Be reminded to think of your sin and know that at the cross it's all forgiven. You can be cleansed. You can have a clear conscience. Not by ignoring your sin, but by taking it to the cross. 
God is quick to forgive. He's good. He's promised to. He's pledged to through Christ. Experience that forgiveness that you can only have in Christ. And God will give you that new heart. Most of us here are Christians. How about using this season of Lent to draw nearer to God? Spend time actually remembering your evil ways and your deeds. Things that were not good. Loathe yourself for your iniquities. There's something. You never hear that on those TV shows today. You know, sometime during the day, well, go and loathe yourself for your iniquities. <laughs> you know, you don't really hear that on Oprah, right? I know she's not on, but I mean, that's the reality of our human situation. Our problem isn't that we just need a little correction here and there. We need new hearts, and God has given them to us. So be reminded this Lent season of your ongoing need for Christ. Do not brush your sins under the carpet, so to speak, but bring them afresh to Christ and experience your heart coming alive and alive more and more. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Thankfully, God, for the sake of his own name, cleanses us in Christ and gives us new hearts that beat for him. Let's pray. Seems too good to be true, but it's true. Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy and grace. We thank you that you cause our eyes to see um, our own fallen state. But you do it in such a way that it's actually enjoyable, at least when we get to the end of it. It's good to know that we belong to you, that you've given us new hearts. It's good to know that repentance at the cross enlivens these new hearts. May we walk in this truth this week, we pray. Amen.